It took three visions from God to Peter for Peter to understand that the gospel was meant for all people and not just ethnic Israel. Three visions from God where God clearly said to Peter, it's for everyone, Peter. Acts 10, 34, 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In every people group, anyone who fears him, fears God, and does what is right and acceptable to him. God didn't have to tell Peter one time. No, three times. This seems to be a pattern in Peter's life. Three times. Three times that the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ is meant for every nation, all people. How many times and how many ways does God have to tell you that your neighbor that doesn't look or doesn't act like you, or doesn't think like you, is included in the good news and included in his love. And therefore, you ought to love them. How many times does God have to show you or reveal to you the brokenness in your own heart? How many times does God have to reveal the racism that stems from the pride in your heart? How many times does God have to reveal the brokenness in our culture and in our country? How many times does God have to reveal the systemic racism in this country to you? I don't ask these questions to make you feel guilty. Well, maybe I do a little bit, but that's part of my brokenness. I don't, but the reasons why I ask these questions is not for you to feel bad about your thick Headedness or your stone heartedness, but to show that God is long suffering, that God is patient. A God loves his broken children, and our brokenness is far deeper than we can imagine. Our sin is deeper than we once thought, but God's love is deeper. He is and is willing to do the hard work to move us to repentance. To turn him back to himself and to his ways and to his kingdom. Are you willing to do the hard and painful work of repenting? The hard work of looking at your sin. Going into your heart and head and examining and repenting, right? Repenting is this, is this word that's kind of twofold, right? Repenting means, it literally means change your thoughts and also turn the other way. Change your thoughts and change your actions. Two things that we have to do in order to repent. Meaning our thoughts are incorrect and therefore our actions are incorrect. And we need to repent, respond by changing the thoughts and going in a different direction, headed back towards God. From sin, 
to salvation. From death to life. From self-centeredness to selflessness. From hoarding to giving. From self-love to true love. To the kind of love that lays down your life. Lays down your wants and your wills for the sake of the other. If racism and the idea of race is made and constructed and that race and that racism idea can be, can be unmade then. It can be decreated or destructed. And it, it will be. God will be victorious in this. And if it can be deconstructed, this is good news. This is good news because this is part of God's work and therefore it's part of our work as we enter into God's work in his kingdom. This is a part of our job as the church, right? And we've been using this uh, definition of race, which is a social construct to create categories and systems to place value, economic, social, spiritual, etc., based on skin tone, meaning to place value, to place a, a class, a system in place, a, a caste system, if you will, to evaluate a hierarchy of people to make ourselves feel better, and to make others feel worse. And then racism would be a conscious or unconscious bias created by systems and structural inequality. And those systems go on for a long time. So sometimes we are born into them and we don't realize those systems exist. Much like the same way you are born into sin. You don't know any better. You don't know any different. You are just born into it. And so you are naturally a sinner. Same it is with racism. We create uh, systems and class that, and caste that create inequality amongst people because we are sinners. So if racism can be degraded, we learned this last week, what do we do? How do we as the church decreate racism? How do we destroy racism in ourselves, in our church, in the world around us? And last week we learned it starts with love. Right, we start with, we care about this issue. We care about that this is not the way how God loves. This is not well, how the church ought to be. This is not the order in which he created things. And so we care about others. And we love them. And so we care about this issue. And therefore we learn. We hear the gospel. We hear the truth of the gospel. Much like Peter heard. Took him three times in visions to hear the truth of that gospel. We, listen, we learn biblical truth, what we gather here this morning. We learn about the history that we were not taught. We learn about the history in this country. We hear the history of the country uh, in the perspective of people of color. Learn things that we haven't understood. We learn about systemic racism and how it's lived out today. And once we learn those things, the biblical truth, the truth about ourselves, the truth about the world around us, it should drive us as any people, as Christians, to confess. To confess our brokenness. To confess our fears. To confess our complicity in racism. To confess our own racism. To confess our willing ignorance. To confess our fear that this is hard work and could possibly divide us or produce little results. 
But if we love, if we love, we seek out truth. We seek out God's truth. And when we seek out God's truth, we find that we need to confess in all areas of life. And when we confess, that means we have to repent. We have to change our thoughts and go in a different direction. Go in the opposite direction. We have to repent. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. What it is means to change our thoughts and to go in a different direction. It doesn't mean they do any good to confess that you're a sinner and still go in the same direction. God didn't create you. God didn't save you. God didn't die on a cross and justify your sins to say, hey, keep going. You're, just, you're doing just great. No, he did that. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit to move us, to move us and to change our thoughts and to change our direction. Move us back into him. Matthew 3, 2, this is what John the Baptist says. Repent. This is his gospel. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And listen, this is not just John the Baptist's gospel. This is the same gospel that Jesus repeats at the very beginning of his ministry. Gets it in Mark, right? He says, Mark 1, 12. Repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's present. There is a urgency in this message, in this good news. Change your thoughts, your thinking incorrectly. Change your actions and go back to God. There is an urgency, an eagerness in this message. Later on in the same passage in Matthew, Matthew 3, 7 through 10. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, and the Pharisees and Sadducees were the religious leaders. They were coming to the baptism that John was doing, baptizing people in the wilderness. And he said to him, you brood of vipers. Not really polite words, by the way. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Did you hear that? Right? John's actually telling you what this means. It says repentance means that there actually something should come out of it. It, sh- it should show something. It's not just change your thoughts and no one will know that you changed your thoughts. But your life should bear a fruit. should show that what the thoughts that you think. And here's the truth. Our lives do show the thoughts that we think. It bears that out. And so John is telling to these religious leaders of the time that ought to know God, hey, repent and bear fruit in that repentance. Let your life show it. Change your, bear fruit in changing your thoughts and your ways. What you're saying and what you're doing is wrong. Think about this. John the Baptist is telling the religious leaders of the day, the people that ought to know God the best, who are ones that are telling people about God, says, listen, what you think you know about God is wrong. The way you're telling people to act and try to be obedient to God is wrong. What you know is wrong. You can imagine why they might not like John the Baptist. And then he doesn't just stop there. He goes on. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John tells these people, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know God. Your teaching is all wrong. And then he gives them the truth of the gospel. He gives them the truth of the good news. He says, look at 
you aren't God's children because you're descendants of someone. You aren't God's children because you are ethnic Israelites. Because you come from Abraham. That's not how it works. That's not the good news. Because you're a descendant of someone. You are a child of God because God makes you so. Period. That's the good news. You are a child of God because God declares it. Because God makes it so. And guess what he goes on to say. God can make children out of stones. God can make children out of inanimate objects. That actually is good news. You may not think, well, that's kind of weird. Good news, right? So this is good news because this should be a convicting thought to us and encouraging. Because if God can make inanimate objects his children, he can take our hearts of stone and bring new life to them and make us his children. Not because of certain ethnicity, not because of a certain race that we create, but because God declares it so in our lives. God has that power. That's the truth of the gospel that John gives the religious leaders. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Meaning, you had this sin that was revealed to you. You confessed it, and it moved you not to stay the same, not to feel bad about yourself, but actually to change your thoughts and to change your ways. For you felt a godly grief. That's a godly grief. When God convicts you in his conscience, when the Holy Spirit rises within you and reveals the sin that's in you, the wrongness that's in you, and it changes you to live that out. So that you suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief leaves you just here going in the same direction. Death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, right? Do you hear that word again? There's like this, the same thing that John the Baptist said, repent. There's like this urgency, there's this command. There's earnestness. There should be an eagerness in our heart. There should be like, wow, a zeal, a passion to move us. Like, man, this is not okay. I got to move. I got to change. I got to go in a different direction. Learning about our sin, learning about your sin, learning about your ways in which you've been, maybe have been complicit or have been racist yourself, is not meant to make you feel bad about yourselves. It's not meant to harm you. But it's meant to produce repentance in you. To change your thoughts and to change your ways. To turn back to God. To turn back to Christ-likeness. This is in the sense we get in Philippians 2, 12, this working out our salvation, this, this idea that we are joining in with the Holy Spirit to work out repentance in our life. That's what our life is from cradle to grave is the life of repentance. That's what Jesus comes to do. He's baptized into John's baptism, which is repentance. He is, Jesus doesn't need to repent from anything. He is God. He is perfect. But he models for us repentance. He models a life of what it means to repent, to turn back to God. 
And there's an eagerness, a zeal, a movement of our heart to change and to change now. And of course, that change happens a lot slower than we want. Even though there ought to be eager and zeal to this change, it happens a lot slower than we want. In others, particularly, right? We're good at evaluating others. Man, they're just not moving fast enough. They're just not changing, not bearing fruit quick enough. But the reality, it takes a long time for this heart and us to move. But God is long-suffering. God is incredibly patient with us. He wants us to have an eagerness to do this. But there's a lot of work to be done. We get this eagerness, this sense of zeal in the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, right? Zacchaeus, who's this chief tax collector, who's confronted, who actually meets Christ, who doesn't even tell him anything. It just says, hey, I'm going to have that meal with you, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, who's alone, who's considered the worst sinner out there. Worse than sinners. He's a tax collector. And what does Zacchaeus do in his earnestness? He repents. And he proclaims, listen, if I have cheated anyone in every money that he made, he cheated. Every money that he made, it was a cheat. He cheated people out of money. He says, I will give four times back that much. Now, how is that possible? 100% of your money in which you cheated, and you're going to give four times that back. The math didn't end up. But he was just so eager, so excited. And Jesus, this guy, I'm sure he just chuckled at his mind. Like, that's right, Zacchaeus. Let's go. You got the right idea. Eagerness. A zeal about that. It takes an eagerness in our hearts and it takes a patience in our heart because it takes longer than we think. Longer than you want. For Peter, it took three visions. Three visions for Peter. And then even still we come to this episode after the three clear visions to Peter. We come to this episode of him and Paul in Antioch, as described in Galatians, patience. Galatians 2, 9 through 21. And when James and Cephas, Cephas is Peter, uh, Peter right away, and John, who seemed to be pillars, I like that, that's kind of a little slight to them, who seemed to be pillars of the faith, perceived the grace, the good news that was given to me, Paul says, that was given to Paul, that give, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should show Go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the people that ethnically were different than us, and they were to and to the and to the circumcised, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This this grace was given to to Paul and and Peter and James and John said, "Listen, pillars of the faith." Paul says, seemingly, they saw it to me who. Guess what? Paul was an enemy to them. Paul was actively persecuting them and Christians before God changed his heart. And they were able to see through that difference and say, you know what? Yes, you're included now in the kingdom. They were able to see that separation and go beyond that barrier and say, yes, Paul, you're included. You're part of this good news. And then it goes on to verse 11. So they can see outside of barriers. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain, from before certain men from James, from Jerusalem, he was eating with Gentiles, right? So he was eating with Gentile Christians 
And then people from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians came. And then Paul, but when he, they came, he drew back. Peter drew back and separated himself. Peter becomes a segregationist. So, whoa, I know we're all Christians, but uh, I'm no longer eat with the Gentiles. I'm going to eat with the Jews. And why was this important? Why was it? Because Jewish people and the Jewish Christians that took on this, they had certain ceremonial and food table laws that they had to observe. Right? There was a cleanliness law. And for them, Gentiles weren't clean, or nor did they observe those cleanliness laws. For they, they were defiled themselves if they ate with Gentiles or ate with people that didn't observe those cleanliness laws, those, those tables. In a sense, very, very, very polite table manners. Or food weight, or certain foods that you would eat. Goes on. He set, Peter separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, fearing these Jewish Christians would think bad about himself. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter separates himself. From the Gentiles, when you see the Jewish Christians coming, eats with them. And what Paul is saying, hey, Peter, you're leading people astray. You're giving them the wrong gospel. You're giving them the wrong truth. And you're leading other Jews astray that were eating with us before. And even Barnabas himself is coming and separating himself. Right? One of these main issues. Paul was convinced, was convinced by the grace of the gospel. It is not by outward obedience that we are saved by grace. But it's by the, what God does inside of us. What's put on. Jesus even says the same thing, right? It's not, it's not what comes out of your mouth that corrupts you or not what you put into your mouth, but what comes out. Because it's your heart that's corrupted. This world is not corrupting you. You are corrupted from inside. My, I'm sorry, my mic is bothering me. It's because I am sweating like crazy up here. And it is pulling down. We'll get this right. And just stop distracting me. All right. So this was a, a, a issue, a cleanliness issue of the heart in which Jesus is saying, in which Paul is saying, this is the matter of the gospel. Everything is corrupted about you. Everything is broken. And Jewish Christians were putting up a barrier to non-Jewish Christians, Gentiles. And they were being separating they were separating races. They were separating ethnic nations based on ceremonial holiness laws in which Jesus has already thrown out. says, I'm the fulfillment of all of those things. Peter is, and he goes, is living like a Gentile when those Jewish Christians aren't around because he under, actually understands the gospel. But when they do come around, he doesn't act like that. He acts the opposite way. That is the definition of being hypocritical. And what Paul is saying, that is antithetical to the gospel. Three visions, three dreams God gives Peter. He stand, then we come to this episode, and Peter still screws this up. And you wonder why you have a hard time. And it goes on in verse 14. Paul says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, right? Not in step. They had the wrong knowledge and they had the wrong action. So they were going the wrong way. I said to Cephas, I said to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, 
How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. There's the gospel. Did you hear that? You are not justified by your outward obedience, but you are justified by in your faith, in your trust in God, which goes all the way back to that John the Baptist passage, right? How are you children of God? Because God declares it so. Because God can make stones children of God. God can take your broken heart and give you a heart of flesh. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one is justified. Period. Here's Paul's argument. It actually is backwards. It starts in verse 15 and 16. God did not have fellowship based on skin tone, based on race, based on culture, based on some observation of the ceremonial or holiest laws, or even based on any moral law. God doesn't say, I'm going to have fellowship with you on that. We, you might have been righteous according to your customs, but that has nothing to do with your relationship with God. So you might have fulfilled all the laws and ceremonial laws, but that does not make you right with God. Something wrong inside of you, right? So how can you have fellowship with others? This is Paul's argument. If, if this is not how you have fellowship with God, how can you decide the basis of fellowship with others based on race, customs, obedience of law? That's not how it works. If that's not how God works with you, why would you create an active system that that's how it works with others? This is not in step with the gospel. This is not in step with the truth. And as Tim Keller points out, Paul doesn't simply say to Peter, you're a racist. Or you're, you're sinning, your racism is sin. Because partly that's what it is. Although it is, a right, it is a failure to love neighbor, it is a sin. Paul goes to the spiritual root of the matter to Peter. He says, Peter, your thoughts and your actions are rejecting the gospel. You're rejecting the truth of the gospel. Right? We've learned that racism at the very beginning is the distortion of the true knowledge and the image of God. Right? Racism is then saying, hey, this is who God is and this is how he acts and this is how people are in, Right? And by racism, by very definition, by defining what the image of God is and whether people are human or not human, that distorts the true knowledge of who God is. So if that is true, then racism by its very definition right here with Paul saying is actually a rejection of the gospel of salvation. It is a return. Racism is a return to trust in works righteousness. Hearts that are opposed to grace and to love. Your heart that is opposed to grace and love find ways to self-justify, to make yourself righteous, to make yourself feel superior. 
in whatever ways. Maybe it's by your actions. Maybe it's by your skin tone. Maybe it's how you you eat in your manners. Whatever it is, you will find ways when you actually think it's works righteousness and not grace that saves you. You will find ways to separate, to segregate, to make yourselves superior to others. And that's what racism is, is a rejection of the gospel. Paul doesn't say repent of your sin of racism, but he says repent of your sin of forgetting the gospel of God. Peter, you have forgotten the costly sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Paul moves us and he moves Peter to receive repentance, not just as outward behavior, but of an inward thought, returning to the treasuring the riches of Christ. Not just our actions. Not just hoarding the good news for ourselves, but sharing it with all people. It is a thought and an action. We have altered the gospel and you have acted in a way that shows that you've altered the gospel. And Paul's saying to Peter, you've got to go back to the truth of the gospel. And then therefore your actions will demonstrate that to the Gentiles and to the Jews, what the truth of the gospel is. And it's not by any outward obedience to the law that you are saved. Although actions are important. But it is not how you are justified. It is not how God determines to have fellowship with you. Peter's racial sin is rooted in fear. Fear of being rejected, caught, Whatever. I don't know what, what it was motivating his fear in that moment. But for some reason, he saw these Jewish Christians would see him with Gentiles and they would think something differently about him. And so he moved. And we learned last week the antidote for fear is what? Love. Love. When our sin is rooted in fear, we need to be loved and we need to be strengthened in order to get the courage to do the right thing in spite of our fear, in order to believe the right things. We fail to love like Peter because we fail to remember Christ's love for us and that it's not based on what we do for him. Our friend Eduardo told me this this week. He said, listen, people complain about uh, people of color, about their rioting, about their protesting, about any way of their actions, of their seemingly perceived violent actions of people of color. But here's what he says. A people of color, if you actually understand the history in this country, people of color uh, have every right to be, have hatred to other people, to be angry with other people have every right, according to the world standards, to be vengeful towards white people. They have every right, if you actually understand what has gone on and what goes on today. You have every right to do that. And the truth of it is, is that white people have been much more violent, have been much more hateful, have been much more angry about this issue. But the thing that he said, he says, listen, for the vast majority of it all, People of color have actually modeled grace. 
better than white people. Actually model the gospel. Whether they know they were modeling or not, they modeled grace much better. Repentance starts with personal heart checks and communal heart checks. We need each other to point out our sin. We need each other to look into our heart, to look into our thoughts, into our actions, and to call us out on that. Jesus always confronts sin. He never sees someone sitting like, man, I'll just let that slide. We'll just let that one go. He always confronts it. We need to be internally every day confronted because repentance is about every day and every action of our life. It's how to repent, turn back to God. We need to do our own heart examination and we need everyone else to help us in our heart examination to show us what we don't see in ourselves so we can confess it and so we can repent. We need to be humble and not defensive. We need to be willing to receive and acknowledge the implicit and hidden biases, the hidden sins that are in our heart. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not defensiveness. We need to remember and embrace and give grace to others as they point out the sin in us. Right? We, we give it grace to others as we actually point out their sin because what, what Paul does to Peter, he gives him grace. He gives him grace. We need to give grace to others and we need to receive it with grace. The gospel, the truth of the gospel, means we must empty of ourselves, of our self-righteousness, our work righteousness, and remember it's God that makes children out of us, that God changes our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And as Paul goes on to say in this passage, we must die to sin. We must die to our old self. And that takes time, doesn't it? Verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners in Christ, and then a servant of sin, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Repent. Repent with our thoughts, meaning our thoughts are incorrect and therefore our actions are incorrect. Repent. Receive that knowledge. Receive it. Confess it and repent daily. I mean, we of all people as Christians ought to know this. This is to be foundational in our lives. We should model repentance in our lives to people and not model defensiveness. So, Repenting, leading people to that truth, leading people to repentance, point them to the gospel and point them to God's grace. I think what Paul does to Peter, he doesn't just point out to the sin, he points to the sin and says, listen, that sin actually distorts the truth of the gospel. Get it right. Let me tell you what the gospel is. 
It doesn't mean when you speak with someone in grace and love, it doesn't mean you can't have hard words with them. In fact, it probably means the exact opposite. These words are really hard to confront someone in their sins. But the words ought to point people to God's love, not just to their sin. If you love them, point them to the grace. Point them to the truth of the gospel. And then, not just point people and lead people in grace, respond to repent in repentance with grace. Especially with our implicit bias and our unconscious bias and racism, right? Things that we don't know, we have to receive it. I strongly recommend to you, read the book, White Fragility. It's actually a non-Christian book. But here's the thing, as I read it, and I saw her applications points at the end, she actually comes upon what it means to repent. She, she discovers a truth. She doesn't know, know she discovered this truth, but she discovers her truth. How does one repent? And she lays it all out. And as I read it, I'm like, man, this lady actually understands what it means to repent. I mean, she actually doesn't know the truth of the gospel. I don't know what she's repenting to, but what she's recommending for us is all things we should receive for any sin. And just here's a couple of them. Listen. A person who's willing to repent listens. Goes back to the beginning. Is humility that I really don't know all that much and I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to so listen, learn. And when you learn, there's usually discomfort, right? Because there's going to be a place when you might feel unsafe. You might feel unsafe when people point out their, your sin. Minimize defensiveness in your life. Understand that you have blind spots to your stone hard-heartedness. And then demonstrate that you believe in the gospel. Demonstrate that actually you know that you are a sinner saved by grace. So receive it with grace. And see the opportunity to grow in grace and to become more Christ-like. Seek these moments of people confronting you. Seek them so you can understand more about who God is and who you are. Be thankful for this truth. Don't attack the messenger and ignore the message. Oftentimes we get defensive and say, I don't like your tone. I don't like the way you're talking to me. And so you dismiss the message altogether. And certainly, people can work on tone. We can work on tone, right? I work on ways to try to, how do I going to say something so someone can receive it? But we often become so defensive that I don't like the way you spoke to me, so I'm not going to receive that truth, or that doesn't mean it's true. Listen, someone can have a really nasty tone to you, and this thing they're saying to you can actually still be true. Seek out that truth. Don't worry about the tone. Don't, don't, don't try to police someone else's tone. Receive it. Apologize. Apologize begins with a thought and then begins with action, which means bear fruit in that repentance. And what's the fruit that we ought to bear? It's right, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22, 23, which is not an exhaustive list, right? But here's some of it. The fruit that you should bear in your life, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are things that should bear in your life towards others. Love, your love for someone else doesn't need reciprocity. 
God's love for us doesn't need our reciprocity. doesn't need us to love him back. In fact, he loves us while we are sinners. There is no quid pro quo in God's love. God loves. He doesn't expect things back. He wants it. Love transforms. And the way we love others, we don't expect, well, you have to behave a certain way for me to love you. That's not the gospel. Love needs God's grace. People of color don't need our pity. People of color do not need white people's pity. They need our courage. They need our courage to love, to learn, to confess, and to repent. And this isn't just a message to white people. This is a message to all people. All of us need to do this. This takes courage. This takes faith. This takes trust in God, that God is sovereign in all of us. Decreating racism starts with love. It goes back to the beginning and ends with love. Repentance is an act of love, a love for God and a love for neighbor. Repentance is about change. Repentance is about God's grace for us. It's about, repentance is about love. Responding to God's love for us. Will you demonstrate repentance in your life? Will you just demonstrate repentance to decreate racism in your life, in this church, and in the world? Will you demonstrate and live out repentance so others may see and understand God's grace for them? So they can understand the gospel. That's how important this is. Will you do this with me? Will you help me in this? Let's pray. Dear gracious Father, I am sorry that I so quickly move away from the gospel and move so quickly away from your grace. Lord, preach it again to me today.